0: you're watching deprogrammed this is the new culture forum's latest show committed to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity particularly among the young my name's harrison pitt i'm a senior editor at the european conservative and i'm thrilled to be joined today as ever by evan riggs who is a freelance journalist and our special guest this week paul morland a distinguished authority on demographics and author most recently of tomorrow's people now paul um one of the main theses in your book, um, to, uh, tomorrow, Tomorrow's People, is the idea that like, demographics fundamentally shapes power, um, power dynamics but between countries. Would, would it be fair to say that one of the lessons we've learned over the last four weeks, that it also shapes power dynamics within countries that have embraced mass immigration and multiculturalism?
1: Certainly does, and in fact that was the theme of my first book, which was my PhD thesis. Uh, which is demographic engineering, where I look at ethnic conflicts. Specifically, I looked at Israel and Palestine. I looked at Sri Lanka, Northern Ireland, and in fact, the United States. And in all of those cases, I looked at how groups in ethnic conflict, and those ethnic conflicts are very diff- different, some of violent uh some are not some have been some haven't been but essentially where you have groups of different ethnicity within a single country how they actually deploy demography as part of their strategy in the conflict so just to give you a few examples we don't think of the united states as a country particularly of ethnic conflict although perhaps more now than we did when i wrote the thesis but if you look at issues such as u.s immigration policies in the 20s They were very much driven by a view of what the united states should be demographically if you look at how the united states expanded 1848 war against mexico took this vast part of mexico and actually conquered the whole country and the debating congress concluded we don't want the southern half of the country it's full of mexicans we definitely don't want them the northern half of the country will take it's got hardly anyone in them and then when they when they actually made these administered territories states they only did it once they had an Anglia majority. Mm. So the last one was New Mexico, early 20th century, quite a long time after. Only once they had the technology to bring in the irrigation which brought in the European origin farmers did they actually make that a a state which could then govern itself. So would the United States wish to have annexed Cuba or Philippines, all these things were debated and actually it was an ethnic decision around who were Americans, who were in and who Mm. wasn't. And that's something which has evolved over time. If you look at the conflict in Sri Lanka, how Sinhalese and Tamils were defined, um, migrations of uh, hill plantation Tamils to southern India, forced migrations the the whole history can be best understood as an ethnic struggle with a demographic fundamental uh, substructure.
2: Hmm. the, The cruel irony being that everybody in America now expects that area that was once Mexico to basically return to it in probably the next, you know, I don't know, five or six decades, it will essentially become re-annexed by its uh, its original host.
1: Well, I would wonder if that was the case, because of course, there's what I call hard demography and soft demography. The hard demography is actually moving people around. The soft demography is drawing borders on maps, but it's also about how people integrate. And I think there's a lot of evidence that the Latino population in the United States is assimilating fairly quickly, but the Spanish language is lost fairly rapidly. Catholicism which doesn't really mark them out as anything other than as American as JFK Mm. even that is falling away so I do think that there are some populations migrant populations which can and will assimilate fairly rapidly
0: but one thing one thing I would say is that we don't want to focus too much on the United States I think it's most important for our audience to focus on what's happening in Britain uh, here but there's I mean I mean what evidence is there for example that Latinos at scale don't consider themselves Latinos first and Americans second to some extent I mean to to what extent are they committed given what they regard as their tribal group and you know uh, tribal collectivism is an important feature of human psychology that's part of the thesis of that's why that's why these conflicts can can Mm. become incredibly volatile what evidence is there that Latinos at scale are shedding the importance of their Latino identity and are thinking of American politics primarily primarily through the lens of well, this is America's national interest and so I'm going to set aside my own in-group, ethnic self-interest. What evidence is there that that attitude is, is um, active at scale?
1: I think the evidence is not necessarily that individuals are changing their minds, although they might be, but the evidence is intermarriage, so the number of people of Latino origin who are mm. marrying non-Latino origin individuals. Uh, the falling away of language which is important i think for that identity if you're two or three generations down the track mm. and you've got one latino grandparent and you don't speak spanish i would question the extent to which you identify as a latino i think of 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 re- prominent republican uh politicians like marco rubio and yes. and, and cruz Oh, I can't remember, it's Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, yes. I then he said Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> but but I think of people like that. Yeah. I think, you know, and the the example in Britain would be, I, I often say this, people sort of uh, forget when I was a kid, we had a lot of problems with the IRA. We had bombs going off. At the height of this, we had a Prime Minister called Callaghan mm. and a Chancellor of the Exchequer called Healy. And if you'd said to anyone, can we trust these people? but they yeah. would have thought you were mad no, and if you'd spoken to Jim Callahan or Dennis yeah. Healy and asked them whether because they had catholic irish names they yes. were i mean they would have thought you were that you were stupid I, and I, and I, that so com- it can happen completely and and the evidence in the united states i think which i'm not an expert on but i okay. think it probably is happening in the united well, states well
0: the the only thing that and maybe this is maybe this is slightly slightly uh, skewed uh, it's, it's a slightly skewed data point since politicians tend to be the most attention-seeking, volatile people. But one thing I do, I notice very strongly is that there is a tendency, and it, it's not not only is there a tendency, but it's considered socially status conferring. And high, it's, it's considered, yeah, it's considered status conferring for Latino politicians to say things like, "We want 20% representation in Congress. We want 20% representation in this. Everything is viewed." As far as i can tell by particularly by democrat latino politicians through the lens of their latino identity which is inevitably going to great with the identity of the host population so even if they're shedding language even if they're shedding catholicism and as a catholic myself i wouldn't even necessarily regard that as a good thing but if that is happening okay that's one thing but are they are they to Amer- to contemporary america today what say irish americans and german americans are today i.e people who i know lots of german americans i know lots of irish americans They would never in a million years be inclined, but just because their ancestors came there in the 1840s or in the 1850s, to see every single issue in the United States through the non-negotiable lens of their German identity or the Irish identity, that doesn't matter to them, it's a curiosity to them. They look at old pictures of people who immigrated, maybe, maybe they do that, but it, it doesn't inform their politics in the way that it clearly does. huge swathes of Latinos in the United States and I think to the extent that that makes um, democratic consensus-based politics more difficult it's a serious problem and a sign that assimilation isn't actually going it may well well.
1: it may well be but three three points on that Mm -hmm. Um, the first is that it's worth noting that the fertility rate of Latinos among many other things, mm. has conformed to the national average, it was much, much higher. Mm. The second thing is that inflows, at least from Mexico, mm. have slowed down significantly. And the third thing is that uh, a Latinos voting Republican, whatever uh, the more woke members of the Democratic Party of Latino origin may say or not say or do or not do, uh, has certainly grown. So along all those lines. I think if I were an American, I would not be too worried about uh, Latinos becoming a separate nation within a nation. I think they are a highly mm. assimilable group. Mm.
2: Okay. On, on this topic of, of, of TFR conformity, uh, it seems that most groups in the world, um, within a generation of immigrating to a new place, their, their total fertility rate um, tends to basically average out at the, no. the host nation's level, but there are some groups that do not do this. Um, I think Muslim basically, any immigration from anywhere in the world, so long as you're part of the Muslim faith into into England would probably be the most stark example here. Do you think there is something, um, two questions on this, do you think there is something inherently pronatal about Islam and kind of not only inherently pronatal but anti, anti-conformist in that way about about the faith? Mm. And can you think of any other groups that have that same kind of resilience to that TFR conformity? apart from the adherence of Islam?
1: So first of all on Islam, it is not true that Muslims don't conform, they just conform more slowly. Hmm. So the best data that I've seen on the UK, and it's not great, we don't actually have very good TFR by ethnic group or by religion, Um, but the best data that I've seen suggests that Sikh and Hindu fertility rates are if anything slightly below those for the population as a whole, Hmm. and that Muslim rates have come down significantly Um, albeit that they are still relatively high, but they're probably no more than a child above the level of the population as a whole. Now a child is a lot, a whole child, but it's definitely conforming. Um, In terms of Islam, there's, there's some specifics around the particular Muslim communities that have come to Britain. So in the United States, Muslims are very often more middle class. In Britain, for historic reasons, Um, Migrants from poor parts of Bangladesh Silhet or from poor parts of Kashmir have been the predominant, South Asian anyway, immigrants or Somalis. So they tended to come from pretty poor backgrounds compared to many other immigrants and we might expect that to be a cause of their uh, assimilating more slowly. If you actually look globally at Islam, it's true that in most countries where you have a Muslim and a non-Muslim population, the Muslim fertility rate's higher. In India, for example, it's higher, but it is falling significantly. Uh, In Israel, it was higher. It's now about the national average of about three. Uh, So I didn't think there's anything inherent about Muslims. You're talking about Arab Israelis? Arab Israelis, and Mm -hmm. and indeed on the West Bank and even in Gaza where Mm -hmm. it was kind of five or six at the start of the century. The Mm -hmm. last data is only somewhere between three and three and a Mm -hmm. half. So even in the occupied territories, the fertility rate has come down significantly. And we do have Muslim countries, such as Lebanon, such as Iran, where fertility rates have fallen, such as Libya. Um, Such as Morocco and what's interesting is many of these countries have not developed very rapidly economically Mm. They haven't really gone through an economic development, but they've gone through a demographic transition Mm. faster than you would have expected given where they are so I, I However, I do think that all the Abrahamic religions are inherently more pronatal than not and therefore it takes longer for all the, the people who adhere to those religions to have a lower fertility rate. So we know, famously, Italy now has a very low fertility rate. Catholic Southern Europe, very low fertility rate. It, it moved fairly slowly. If you compare in Asia, say, the fertility rate of predominantly Catholic the Philippines mm. or predominantly Muslim Indonesia, what we find is that those countries have fallen to the kind of two to three level and mm. stuck there. I think the Philippines is still at the higher end and Indonesia at the lower end. Um, countries like Thailand, where they don't have an Abrahamic tradition, they have a Buddhist tradition, there doesn't seem to be much blocking mm. the fall of fertility. We're seeing it in mm. India, predominantly Hindu India as well, that once the a, a certain level of development kicks in, and it's actually quite a low level of development, uh, you, you start to see very low fertility rates, large parts of India, West Bengal, Kerala have lower fertility rates than
0: Britain. One of the interesting points that you do make, I think you'd make it in tomorrow's people, is the fact that once, we, once so to speak a, a certain peak of economic and material development has been achieved, because everyone's so to speak on the same playing field at that point, it's, it's, particularly if you live in a multicultural country like Britain, you have the Muslim community, you have the, 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 the host population, you have the, the Sikh community or the Hindu community, all this sort of thing. Um, once the same material conditions obtain, that what you really begin to see in differentials is the result of what people fundamentally think in terms of values and and religions and all the rest of this and i think in answer to devon's question would, would it be fair to say as well that there are also certain christian communities who have held out and re- remained in- incredibly pronatalist haven't shed that part of their religious inheritance to the, I'm using Christian in a broad sense here to include Quakers to include um, uh, Mormons in particular in the, in the United States I mean I, I, I haven't met many Mormons but every Mormon I have met is from a family of about 12 people
1: Well you're um, right about Christian groups but um, I don't think the Quakers have a particularly high fertility rate the Mormons mm. have, have a rate that has fallen What do I mean? I
0: mean the Amish yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean the, the Amish Am- have Am- Am- taken over Pennsylvania The Mormons <laughs> have fallen I mean very, the
1: very The Amish and the Hutterites have very very high fertility mm. they're still very small groups so the question with them is are they able to do two things number one Mm. retain a high fertility rate number two retain a low attrition rate by Mm. which i mean few people of their children and their grandchildren falling off the path as Mm. it were Mm. um the hasidic jews or haredi jews more generally are a good example of this if, if you can maintain a fertility rate of average six or seven for a number of generations, and very few of those leave the fold, then you will have astronomical growth. You could have growth of three or four percent mm. a year, which as you can imagine, if you project that forward for a couple of hundred years. The question is, can you maintain it for a couple of hundred years? Uh, we, we often delude ourselves that certain groups are inherently pernatallist. So in my second book, the human tide I talk about how the French after 1870 looked over the Rhine and thought oh my goodness the German woman will always have more children mm. and uh, then the Germans whose fertility rate like ours had fallen to about three by the time of the First World War looked east and saw the Russians and said oh the endlessly fertile Russian woman and now we know that Germany and Russia have very low fertility rates yes. so I wouldn't necessarily think that these groups will retain their fertility rates so high for so long or that they'll be able to retain all their people but if they do then they will become very significant um, demographically in due course.
0: There, there are contingent factors involved as well to be for sure it's not just universal essences of certain faiths or certain ways of thinking which drive this that, mu- that must be true. Um, but if we, if we, if we, <coughs> if we um, continue on Britain for a bit one question that I'm, I'm genuinely curious to hear the answer to is that I, I think rather uncontroversially you uh, earlier on in this you, you went through all sorts of parts of the, all sorts of places in the world, all sorts of stri- foreign stretches of the map where ethnicity, like a perception of ethnic in-group and ethnic out-groups clearly informs politics and even can, can, can spark wars. Why is there a reluctance to acknowledge in Europe that the more we imitate that kind of, he- those kind of heterogeneous dynamics by embracing diversity and trying to sell it as some kind of strength, If the the significance of demographics is readily acknowledged by our political class, as it will do in places like Tibet, places like Israel, why is it not acknowledged here? Why is there such a strong taboo on that?
1: Well, I'm sometimes asked why I'm interested in this subject and one of the reasons I give is that I was born and brought up in Wembley. And uh, few parts of London have seen such early and thoroughgoing Mm. ethnic changes. Wembley, and I remember when I started studying that notorious subject, philosophy, politics and economics in the early 80s, my tutor said to me, now Brent, that Brent, which is the borough in Mm. which Wembley sits, it's a very interesting place. It's the only part of London and possibly the UK that has real New York style politics. Mm. In those days, there was a kind of Jewish caucus, there was an Asian caucus, it's changed a lot since then. And that is the way the country could potentially go now with constituency systems in Britain, we haven't seen the rise of a an ethnic party uh, certainly within England I mean Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland are different and, and regional we are now seeing with the war in Gaza the rise of a dissent within Labour, exactly. for example. Yes. And and I think Keir Starmer and politics, uh, contemporary British politics, not particularly my area of expertise, but obviously I follow it. And Keir Starmer clearly wants to differentiate himself from Jeremy Corbyn, who no doubt won the allegiance not only a lot of a lot of hard left wingers, but a lot of Palestinian sympathetic Muslims. And what he found was that for every one of those people that you attract quietly, you annoy mm. an awful lot of people. A lot of decent Labour voters felt nauseated by seeing Jeremy Corbyn laying a wreath, at the or at least present, uh, if not participating, mm. at the at, <laughs> at, at, at the tomb pictures, yes. of, a, of someone who had massacred Israeli um, Olympians, uh, a, 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 I think athletes in a, in Munich, um, um, all praising or defending a mural whose own uh, artist said it was depicting Jewish bankers. <laughs> and a few non-Jewish bankers feasting off the backs Mm -hmm. of uh, the the toiling masses and so on. So I think a lot of people found that disgusting. Now the trouble is, uh, when a certain ethnic group reaches a certain level, then there is a potential for that kind of ethnic politics. Our system in Britain, because of constituency systems, makes that difficult. We kind of saw it with George Galloway when he he was flirting with the Trotskyists and a Muslim group. Now he's interestingly... Mm. Flirting with us with the Stalinists, but that's mm. his uh, his lookout. But trying to build sort of green red uh, alliances uh, hasn't really worked yet. I think because of the constituency system, it won't in Britain. But we could probably more likely to see it in other countries where the political system is different mm. and politics changes. It was class based; it could become ethnic based. Yes. I find that alarming but other people might just say well that's political development and I remember the 70s when we had a very much class-based politics and it was alarming seeing very violent pickets yeah, outside factories
0: Indeed but the, but the fact that and I know you're not saying you agree with this but the, the, the fact that there exist already in any population there are going to be d- divides of so, so to do with socio-economic just that's just that's in the nature of human relations that you're going to have economic divisions you're going to presumably to have regional divisions I mean division uh, politics exists in order to try and Converge peacefully on solutions to solve divisions, but that's no reason to invite Potentially dozens of intractable divisions into your country and it's very interesting. I saw Aaron Bastani the other day um, Trying to explain why is it and he actually is it's so it's so Astonishingly ignorant in so many ways saying I wonder why it is that the Labour Party today is is so racked over over the issue of um, Israel Palestine in the 1970s Harold Wilson was a was a very mild-mannered liberal Labor Zionists. I mean, I mean, clearly something changed. Those are his words, and then he he tries to explain it by recourse to the influence of the Socialist Workers Party, as though, I mean, without demographic change since the '90s, it's very possible that in the last four weeks we would have had some protests in the street, but they would have been new left cranks from the 1960s all boomers presumably. Yeah, there and, wouldn't have been a hundred thousand of them There wouldn't have been a hundred thousand of them. So, Aaron Bastani's that sort of fake puzzlement over how, how on earth did we get here? This is a problem that we didn't need to invite upon us, and I think that's why people feel so disgusted by the scenes we've seen. I don't even think it has... I mean, obviously we, the, the manifestations of anti-semitism as well, the, the, the obvious horrors of, you know, um, you know uh, sort of uh, glorifying terrorism or, or having a parachute on your back or you know ripping down a a a poster of a kidnapped child obviously all that is th- those are the most um viral things those are the things that go viral but i think the the the, the more deep seated objection that the british people have to this is a sense that this it didn't we, we, we didn't need to import these sorts of ethno religious grievances into our midst and it it illustrates the failure of 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 multiculturalism in that way so it's not even about being anti free speech and, and thinking that you know, having a moral panic over these things, it, it, it reflects something that has happened to the British people without their consent and I think that's what grates um, pe- against people's sentiments so strongly.
1: Well I did watch that Aaron Bastani did you? interview I did was quite know? astonished that he didn't know the founder of the SWP was someone called Yigal Gluckstein <laughs> who changed his name to Tony Cliff, and uh, having been born in British you, Mandate yeah, Palestine yes. became a very strong supporter of uh, all things anti-Zionist. Yes. Um, the fact is that and i think no doubt we will move on to this in due course mm. that in this country we have not had enough children for the last 50 years now there are and this is where i come onto to my concept of the trilemma there are really three things we can do we can go the japanese room saying no immigrants thank you very much uh, we'll shut the doors there is a differential fertility rate it mm-hmm. will dissipate and this country will remain majority if not predominantly are uh, indigenous, white, British as a term I, I use unashamedly because it's on the census right? Indeed, and yes. it's a self-identification term. That would be the Japanese option but we will have terrible labour shortages um, and if you go into an old age home today or you're looking into who the bus drivers are, so many professions, so many jobs are being done by immigrants because we weren't having enough children can ourselves. I, I, sorry, yeah. I don't
2: mean to interrupt the trilemma here but I hear this a lot when people talk about um, fertility rates and like looking ahead. Could you flesh out just like very specifically what would actual like t- terrible labour shortages mean? Because, I mean, there's going to be pros and cons to any part, any sort of attempted solution. Of course. What does that actually look like in practicality? Well,
1: I had this discussion with a, ta- a former Thatcherite cabinet minister, one of the few who's still around. And he said, "Oh nonsense, nonsense! So the market sort thing out. You don't just bring in any <laughs> like any resource. If it's if it's short, it's expensive. The price goes up, demand goes down. What are we fussing about?" Now, I'm not unsympathetic to that point of view, but it forgets the fact that we don't live in the kind of free market economy where we say, "Well, you know, if you can't, if we haven't got enough surgeons, we'll just price accordingly, and mm. if you can't afford, or not, too bad." Mm. If you are an old person living alone and you can't look after yourself and you can't go into the labour market and find someone to do your work for you because you haven't got enough money, that's too bad. So I'm not, I I, I am emotionally a Thatcherite, I think that period was incredibly important for this country but we are now confronted with the fact that we have a large state and we expect as a society the state to do an awful mm. lot for people, and mm. we do not say, Let the devil take the high most and we don 't say, Sorry, you will have to sit at home and look after yourself, dear old person we don't say if you can't afford an nap for your kid or you can't afford a teacher for your so we, we don't live in this um, free market utopia mm. that some people uh, who were at the, the peak of their careers in the 1980s might like us to do in fact, as we age another article i 'm going to work on i hope as we age we become more dependent on the state. So mm. it's hard, I, I, the, the title for that, that essay if I ever get around to writing it will be small families or small state, you mm. can't have both. Yes, I think it's, it's very difficult to have both. You, so there's a shortage of labour we see in everything from for example, do you remember that crisis a couple of years ago, we had no fuel drivers and the, yes. the petrol stations. I ran.
2: wasn't here at the time but I had heard about it, yeah. So
1: we threw money at that and it's, it's a bit whack-a-mole. If you're short of labour, those labour shortages mm. will show up business leaders are crying out for labor. Now, of course, we could say, well, price labor up, more restaurants will shut if people can't pay the price that the, the you know, fewer people in the, in the market, more expensive waiters and, and chefs, more expensive food in the restaurants to eat in a restaurant, fewer people. There are certain parts of the economy where that market mechanism can work. But there are a lot of parts of it where it doesn't work. And if you get a general shortage of labor, it is inflationary, um, that's one thing Mm. but more to the point, we won't live in a world where people get priced out Mm. and we insist on the state making provision and if there are a few and there'll be democratic
0: pressures which will naturally
2: express themselves yes yes.
1: Does Um, that answer your
2: question? Yeah, more or less, I don't know, I always, um, I kind of think that there will be a, a sort of cultural shift if this was to happen instead of people would bring their loved ones back into their home rather than being like well, now you have to die on your own because we can't find a a helper to work for you. Or people will just, you know, cook at home or have big kind of family neighborhood meals.
1: do their own brain surgery. (laughs) Maybe not brain
2: surgery, but I mean, I think for uh, many of the examples that you pointed out, I do think that the culture would shift to kind of fill in the gap. Yes. And it would become a little bit more communal.
0: It, It might also be worth making a distinction between well it's certainly worth making a distinction between high-skilled labour and low-skilled labour, I mean like needing someone I'm, I'm the people who do social care are incredibly self-sacrificed and all the rest of it but it, it's less hard than brain surgery as I understand it More um, people can do, more people do uh, it, it can do. More people can do it, Not everyone can do it, but people more people can do it let's put it that, let's put, <coughs> it, let's, put, let's put it that way so many of the things which could be potentially nipped in the bud by what uh, what Evan's talking about is sort of a shift in the cultural zeitgeist about how we're going to live and how we're going to relate to one another, and it's very interesting that by the, that you mention uh, small states and small families. This is a thought that I've had re- recently, especially if the only re- relationship that exists in society is, the re- is, that, is that which exists between the individual and the state, then inevitably the state is going to arrogate more and more responsibilities unto itself because everything in between, families, most of all, have been parish, you know, guild, all these sorts of things have been completely. Hollowed out. What we may, what, what I would want to see, and what Evan's talking about, is a, is a sort of a renaissance of those in betweens, of those those arts of association that people like Tockfield talk about. About and Tockfield regarded those things as important precisely because they preclude the need for some kind of gigantic leviathan that is going to do everything and all that, all that sort of thing. But at, at the high at the, at the high end of the labour market, where you really do need, why is it not possible just to import? I don't know, 10,000 Indian surgeons and leave it at that. Why does it need to be? Do you know what I mean? Well,
1: it's not just surgeons, it's everything. I'd say much of our labor market. But I think the advantage we have is that although we're starting from slightly different places, I too would like to see a a stronger society Mm -hmm. and less dependence on the state. But we do live in a world where if Mr. Bloggs had no children or Mrs. Bloggs and lives on his or her own, we will move in. The state does feel it needs Mm -hmm. to move in. I think a world in which we have larger families is not only a world in which we are going to resolve that labour shortage ourselves Mm. over a course of time while those children enter the labour market, Mm. but also a world in which there are fewer people who don't have children. Mm. So there are more children to look after their parents Mm -hmm. and there are all sorts of positive things. If you get larger families, the advantages of siblinghood, the advantages of stable families, larger families they not only fill up the workforce eventually and solve that problem, but they mean that more and more people can look to their families and not to the state. Mm. So although we're starting from different places, I think you too can see a solution in more people settling down, having their children mm. earlier, having a, a, a slightly larger family.
0: But what, what I'm questioning is... The, the, well I think too, I mean, that'd yeah. be a great
2: way to boost the TFR up. It's like if you yes. don't have kids, you'll die alone. Yes, yes, I mean, that was a big thing when Few. I decided yeah. that I, I eventually did want to have kids is when I realised well, I'm either going to be taken care of my kids or by somebody else's. Yes. And I mean, if I don't know if... People have ever looked at the uh, abuse rates in nursing homes, but I would much rather prefer they were mine. Yes, no, probably be uh, a little
0: bit nicer to me. Uh, absolutely, and one of the things that I think very strongly, I actually went to a conference on fertility in Poland recently, and it's very interesting. I don't, I don't know a huge amount about the subject. I'm an amateur, I'm an amateur enthusiast, as you've probably noticed. Uh, but um, I was very one thought that I did come away with is that gosh, fertility has such a a, a mega effect on everything else that matters to us and we've mentioned too in the course of this conversation we've mentioned the the fact that people are increasingly fearful of the rise of the the, the Leviathan the the, the rise of the state the Mm -hmm. enlargement of the state people feel as though that's crowding out individuality and private life and all that sort of thing and people also are very against the, the rates of immigration we've seen over the last 20 years if we could successfully as conservatives broadly speaking small c conservatives if we could tie the issue of fertility to those those issues which already enjoy extreme salience in the public mind that would be wonderful I think it it
1: would really help but I think there is a problem of compassion Mm. which is that if we are going to say have children or you'll be on your own when you're old we have then to face off to people who are on their own and say too bad and there are all sorts of reasons people can't have children equally when we have people landing on our beaches how compassionate or not compassionate are we now I think that there is a problem in that we I don't think we have the hearts to be uncompassionate I don't think we have the hearts to turn people back to drown and I don't which is why I think alternatives Mm -hmm. like showing them that they will end up in not particularly salubrious conditions in Africa may be a solution but I think we, we are a compassionate society yes. where you draw the line on that compassion how far that compassion goes the extent to which that compassion undermines our ability to act in our own interests yes. all of those things are really important but wherever you are on that spectrum if you have more children families are larger parents have got more children to rely on children have got siblings to help out the family is more is larger and more self-reliant. Wherever you are on that spectrum, you can afford to be a more compassionate society without it undermining you in the sense that you actually need the immigration and that you actually need to provide the, mm. the state as a filler because the families simply aren't there.
3: My
2: worry is that compassion, and I agree that compassion is very good, but that it, it, it has a, uh, a, a dwindling fuse. I think you've pointed out that at current trends um, Britain will become white, ethnic, uh, minority state in 2060 or 2070?
1: Well that's really, uh, it's all very, it hugely depends on the level of immigration. Yeah. Okay. But it, by by twenty six or 2070, that's David Coleman's work. Sure. Yes, that oh, one. On whatever whatever on current decade current, it may end yes. up being, and maybe probably it's sooner, 2100. probably sooner, given the current levels of immigration, probably yeah. sooner.
2: But if that happens, and I, I can't think of a single historical example where a country has had a demographic shift, not like just through like straight warfare or invasion, but mm. basically a trickle coming into a flood in, um, I think that compassion immediately goes away. If you basically told white British people, you're now at 49%, that compassion dissipates overnight. And I think what will then replace that will be like seething resentment, which is something I would very much like to avoid, mm. um, which is why I, I really like your, going back to the trilemma, mm. you have these kind of three approaches to it, which would be Japan, which would kind of automate yourself yes. out of it and just accept uh, slowing down. The second one is importation, essentially, which is what we're doing here. Yes. Can you remind me what the third the one
1: third is? The third is Israel, where the fertility rate is three children per woman. So just which make is everybody more, go back than to whole, more than a whole child more than any other OECD mm. country. And even the Israelis who are secular have an all very close yeah. to replace which is love. very
0: interesting it goes to show how like, if if, <coughs> if the dominant culture in any given s- geographical space is itself reli- is, it, is religious it can, it can have a sort of trickle on domino effect even among people who aren't because you imitate your environment and so you, you well i might be a, a very secular um i don't know secular Jew living in Tel Aviv but my neighbour is an orthodox Jew and therefore I I see he has seven kids so I may as well have two
1: I think in the case of Israel and again this is something that I covered in my first book on ethnic conflict and Mm -hmm. uh, demography the case of Israel is the case of a country which has been under threat from the moment it was born Mm -hmm. whose people know what it's like to be the object of genocide and who uh whose neighbors have been pretty unapologetic whether whether the west wants to hear it or not that what their intentions are and we've all been reminded of that 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 palestine free from the river to the sea means jew free and Mm. those that can get out good luck to them and those that can't yes so with that in 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 mind you might in terror wish to leave or you might in terror not wish to have children Mm. or you might encourage say this is our stand here we are Je um, suis and you know we're going to make a go of this and that involves having large families because secular Jews in New York have among the smallest family sizes mm-hmm. in the United States yeah, so yeah. it's not, I don't think it's so much about the fact that there are religious people around, it's a national ethos it's about, and it's built mm-hmm. on the national history. So it's
0: about, it's a, it's a, maybe what we need to do then is we, we, we need to revive the idea as conservatives that everything that we value exists on a knife on a knife edge, it's all perishable I um, think ephemerality is 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 at the, at the heart of the human condition. We we can't just keep uh, in in a very. I think I think this is one of the main problems with liberalism is that is that and I mean of the classical variety liberalism liberalism likes to think that it's. Its, its, its ideas, its, its principles are so inherently wonderful and yeah, appealing and, yeah. appealing and <laughs> universal that they can sustain themselves in mid-air. Whereas in fact, in so many cases, and Britain would be an excellent example, liberalism sits atop like, centuries worth of scaffolding <laughs> and social capital and I would argue demographic homogeneity as well, a, sh- a shared sense of morality, a shared ethic, all of these things make the best aspects of liberalism possible. And the more that, and and I think the Israelis understand that. The, the Israelis understand that to the extent that Israel is a liberal society, they understand that that liberalism doesn't just sustain itself. You need to be vigilant at the border. You need to have a. a you 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 need to be conscious of the fact that you, that you are always living in history. You're not living at the end of history or after history, so to speak. Whereas I think we've lost that sense in in Europe, and we need to revive it quickly because there's nothing about being white british or white french or white german which makes you magically immune from being persecuted if you become a minority on your own homeland there's nothing i mean ask the south africans ask i mean yeah
1: there well there is as part of this mm. sort of national not, idea not, i
0: should say not that south africa is the homeland of of the of, of the afrikaans and i'm not trying to say that but you, you get the point that, yes that and
1: you, there is uh, my old friend uh, the um theorist of nationalism anthony smith the late Ant- anthony mm. Smith. Anthony um, used to talk about the the myth of common ancestry. Hmm. It wasn't necessarily the case. Genetics tells us an awful lot now, which it couldn't tell us when Anthony started yes. writing. But the idea that we, when I'm, I, my parents are immigrants to this country, I feel 100% affiliation to this country. There's always space for those who acculturate mm. and assimilate mm-hmm. um, and in a liberal country like ours are able to keep their own traditions their own religions and mm-hmm. so on but i think your point about how precarious things are mm. because we've lived in a country where there's been no real invasion for a thousand years and where there's this wonderful myth the second world war a darkest hour and then we rallied and wasn't it glorious i think people assume that uh, all things are going to be bright and beautiful, mm. and all people are pretty fungible, mm. it doesn't really matter where they come from, their culture will assimilate yes. and acculturate, regardless of the numbers. And I think that is a risky strategy. And I think the civilised, decent life that we live in this country is under far more threat, and the whole of Western Europe, under far more threat from a whole range of directions than we realise. And um, that, that the sense of precariousness, whether that would actually mm. result in a rise in the fertility rate of Britain, I don't know. Yeah. But I do think that our, our decent and civilised life is precarious. One of the things that makes it so precarious, I believe, and this is rather straying away from demography, oh. but nevertheless the case, is that if you come to believe that your civilised and extraordinarily decent country is actually an uncivilised and indecent country, you're losing protective layers. Effectively, mm. the protective layers are being stripped away from you. If you don't see, no, no doubt we're not a flawless state, but if you don't see the fundamental decency in your way of life, mm. uh, particularly compared to so many other parts of the world, if you don't compare yourself to reality, not to some theoretical woke construct, but to the other options available in History and Geography then I think you are losing a, a sort of self-protective layer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a rather a long way from my uh, Well I think from it's... My all I, I,
0: I, well, I don't think it is at all. I think it's very closely related to it because one of the things that demography reminds people is that we We, we are not just working with theoretical constructs. I mean like the, the, the rational aspect of human nature matters, but it needs to work with raw material It doesn't it doesn't so to speak exist in some platonic realm of pure mathematics where you can just oh Wouldn't it be lovely if that well that was like that <coughs> this was like you need to work with demographics You need to work with geography and th- 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 There's that sort of understanding of the need to pay attention to the concrete, which informs your discipline very strongly. And one
1: of the best ways to keep a a decent country going and a decent community and mm. society going is for those who belong to it and who are decent. civilised to have children and to inculcate them in those values. Okay. And if they don't have them or if they have them and they don't inculcate them in those values, then we have a problem.
0: So,
2: yeah, I mean, liberalism only exists if liberals are continuing to be born. If you could somehow kind of like finger snap all the liberals off the planet, you know, like uh, Thanos style, it's not, I would say, it's not uh, inherently obvious to me that given another 20, 30 years, it would be resurrected en masse. I'm sure some Mm. people would dust off John Stuart Miller, I'm like, yeah, oh, this guy was on to some stuff, but the idea that it would then come back in a, in, into the form that it is now, mm. it's not the case. I mean, you could even, uh, it's a <coughs> maybe a bit of a strange analogy, but you could even look at, you know, the Second World War and, you know, the the, the plight of Jews and that, what, 80 years later, they mm. still haven't gotten back up to the same level of population that they were before, yes. um, you know, Hitler decided to have a bit of a persecutive moment. Mm. I mean, that's, that's it's been the almost an entire century So if I could give
1: another analogy in the 18th century cities were not very clean or nice places to live No, they weren't and people came from the countryside and they were demographic sinks really Hmm. people had relatively few children and they died the cities were were sinks sinks, but London, Paris survived because there was a constant inflow of uh, of rural people into the urban areas Mm. that was how cities kept going and in a sense I feel Liberals, particularly in the United States which has different geography are rather like the cities of old, mm. they don't produce themselves, we know there's a correlation between liberal values or liberalism or wokeism, however we define and it, fertility. and low fertility. Yeah. And they can only survive by the relative high fertility of other groups which they then absorb their say offspring don't necessarily follow the political example of their children. Yes. And so I think it, the, 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 the woke liberal element which is very often antenatal and which in practical terms doesn't have very large families. Mm is actually reliant for its continued existence on the fertility of others to provide its services mm. and also for its own existence as a sort of ideological core to attract those people. Mm. And that's not a very healthy thing to be doing. No, did do not.
2: Now, you've talked a bit about um, there being a, a sort of pronatal gene or sequence of genes or whatever. Um, which never used to be an issue yeah because basically before birth control didn't matter you're gonna have kids kind of whether you wanted to or not if you don't yeah, yeah unless you wanted to go full monk mode um but now it means it actually means something because now it's a choice do you think that this 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 gene or this sequence of genes is correlated with any sort of political beliefs um i i've done some research into um you know conservatism uh you know kind of what, what it tends to be correlated with and social science is a bit murky i mean people try to link it with authoritarianism in a way that's pretty rough but it seems that the more kind of far to the right you are the more kids you typically have it also seems that people with a high disgust instinct tend to have a lot of kids um and that people who have
1: despite the nappy change <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> w-
2: weirdly um but i think it's because they it kind of insulates them from uh, an environment that they're uncomfortable with, they could just root themselves in their family. Do you you know of any other kind of corollaries like this that's associated with high fertility? Well
1: I think first of all the view, the the, the evidence on genetics is quite limited at this stage so I wouldn't want to overclaim for that. There Mm. is some slightly weak evidence that there is a genetic tendency to be more or less prenatal. And the mm. argument exactly as you've said is mm. that historically um, expressing that gene is either an advantage or disadvantage an and even in quite recent times in the 60s and 70s there was so much social pressure it was so much a norm mm. to have children now we're in an age when you do or you don't and that's a lot to do with your values and your lifestyle and whether you find the right partner and what you want out of life then it would be expressed and then you would have children born predominantly to people with that gene so, you could see this low fertility period as a kind of hourglass time when a lot of people's genes die out, a lot of lineages die out. Those who are genetically pronatal have larger families, pass those genes on, and humanity then revives itself. Sort of self correct. Now, yeah. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know whether it is really going to, whether that gene is strong enough. Mm. Um, but it's an interesting idea. Uh, I would suggest rather that we should rely on cultural norms. We know there are cultural norms that encourage high fidelity. We know that. Yes. Uh, the genetics is is a little uh, risky. Now, I know people like um, Malcolm Collins believe that we're going to end up in a world where not only do we all have this high fidelity gene, but it correlates very strongly with being tribalist. Yep. Um, and, and that we'll end up with lots of little warring groups effectively with high fertility. Because I don't know if that's the case, um, but I think it, it is true that certain cultures are prenatal and I think the problem for liberalism is that it sits fine as a superstructure on a liberal society, a more or less secular society, where there are small groups of far-right nationalists and, and extreme uh, orthodox Jews and and and, uh, uh, you know very devout Muslims and while those are quite small groups liberal society can sit above it and be very liberal and very nice and keep order Mm. and keep orders very important the fact that it can keep order Mm. but at some point it gets harder and harder and I think when we look at these hundreds of thousands in the streets effectively supporting Hamas Mm. um, and the problem the police have to keep order and we project that forward it's very frightening mm. so and it, it could lead to a liberal breakdown because of fundamentally demographic factors whether, cult- whether culturally driven or genetically if driven I, mm. if, I may, if I may
0: just say so, I mean uh, and apart from anything else, even though the genetics is very interesting and the more we learn about that, the better it's always good to know those sorts of things At least it's, unless we're going to Im- embrace I don't know, some kind of gene editing craze or anything like that or some oh. federally eugenics um, the, culture is the one thing that we can to some extent shift and engineer and change. Uh, what do you think we should be doing on that front, particularly at the level of public policy? I mean, it's very it's very demoralizing to me that there are so few Conservative politicians who talk about this. The one exception is Miriam K. Yeah, so who I got to know in the last mm. week or two. But what can we do? Is Miriam onto something with her, some of her suggestions, do you think? and um, and, and what and if not what what should we be doing
1: well first of all miriam is a biology teacher so one thing she talked about when i met her yesterday which i think is a great idea is is explain in the gcse course how fertility falls off so fewer people particularly fewer women go through their 30s thinking time is on their side yeah so sh- actually understanding the and a, a friend of mine who who chairs the. Um, Human fertili- fertility and embryology uh, entity in Britain, which which regulates the uh, use of IVF, and yeah. um, uh, she has the same view that women don't understand the drop off in their fertility. Yeah, it's very
2: roles. cruel that that's not discussed more openly. So
1: if we understood it, you know, when I was a kid, when I was about twelve or thirteen, I learned about Thomas Malthus, and it stuck in my head. When you were and, twelve and thirteen, yeah, you learned about Thomas Malthus, yeah, really? in geography, and and about the demographic transition. It stuck in my head, and it just Fructified there for years and and years and years, it's still there before I became a demographer. But I think what you learn at the right age can have a big impact Mm. and if people don't want children, I mean the the fact is they do and they want more than they have, but they don't want Mm. good luck. That's their decision. At a social level it has consequences they ought to understand. Mm. But at an individual level if they understood the extent to which their fertility dropped off and they modelled their lives in their heads 10 years forward 20 years forward accordingly I think it would make a real difference but in my next book which is procreate or perish the penultimate chapter is what can government do for us and the final chapter is what can we do for ourselves so I do think that there are policies that can help the problem is a lot of people will say I can't afford the housing can't afford the childcare, and I'm all in favor of government encouraging those things subsidizing those things but we know where childcare is cheap like in Germany where housing is cheap like in parts of Scotland Mm. and elsewhere in Europe fertility rates are still very low Mm. so I don't think we can just rely on government policy one thing government can do though is shift the culture or help shift the culture things like the um, teaching of how biology actually works and the timing Mm. on your personal life Are very important, and we have to accept people are very resistant to this. Mm. There was a a head of a Cambridge college who wanted to explain it to her undergraduates, and she got a very very negative reaction. We had a a, a, we had this um, event yesterday where a Labour MP was invited, and she was effectively scared off. This was in Westminster. This was in Westminster. Just talking about whether we needed more children and what. How we could achieve it. Is is the
0: event you're talking about at Cambridge as well? Because I I know some of the people who are involved in that, I won't name them because they might not want to be named, but was it that we were going to put on a film? No, there was
1: the showing of the Stephen Shaw film. That was one thing. But I think it was the head of Murray Edwards College. Uh, I could have the the wrong one. um, Who wanted to talk to her, uh, particularly her female students Mm. in their early 20s, about the fertility trajectory. Mm -hmm. And there was a very heavy pushback. Now whether it happens in their 20s at university or or in the part of the GCSE, sure. curriculum, whenever it is, I think if people actually understood that better, that alone would have do a significant impact yes. on what people do.
2: Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently since I heard a very interesting talk um, on artificial wombs is that like you're right that um, you can do things in politics which kind of shift you towards a more pronatal country, more pronatal outlook I think that's very good. I think that should be done. But if you look at countries like Hungary, which went from like 1.1 TFR to like it's almost at like 1.6 now, mm. that's still not 2.1. No. They've got another 0. 0.5 to go. Or if you look at countries like um, the one that I bring up on every other episode here, uh, Singapore, which has you know like an essentially a benevolent totalitarian state, a multi-ethnic state. Um, they the founder of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, was very much a you know. You might call him a demographic realist, but I, w- I would just say that he was very in tune with long-term thinking about the constitution of the country that he was governing, and he did the, things the, the, the
0: ethnic constitution,
2: the ethnic constitution, but also also age-wise, hmm. um, in a very important way. Like he he would make the the men of Singapore enter university two to three years older than the the women of Singapore because they'd be more likely to pair bond off and have kids, and he really promoted this. Singapore's total fertility right now is like 1.1. 1. 1. It's mm. very, very low, and they haven't really been able to do anything about it despite trying for like five decades. So while I think that politics is downstream of culture, I think they're both downstream of, of tech. And I wonder if we'll end up being forced in a kind of Japanese-like scenario where people will enact policies, they'll, they'll, they'll try to do these things, but the reality is, is that we're going to end up with kind of like gene-spliced fat babies, essentially, Because if I was, I I think, you know, artificial wombs. let's say even if they're 10, 20 years out, that's probably a quicker change than changing the entire trajectory of the natalist movement in England, let's say. And if I was, you know, let's say Victor Orban trying to get up to 2.1, I would just say, well, we're just gonna build a couple warehouses and stick a bunch of fat babies in there. Uh, We'll do like kind of Malcolm and Simone gene gene selection, not gene editing, but selection. um, And my problem has just been solved. I mean, you can literally just invent your way out of it and they are doing, they do have artificial wounds now for lambs. You know, I mean, growing a human is not that much harder than growing a lamb. I mean, you think about 10 years from now, I kind of feel like it'll happen. I kind of feel like a lot of countries that don't want to die out, maybe South Korea would be the great example, or Japan, will just end up adopting this technology en masse and saying, look, we, if we can, can't convince you guys to have kids, so we'll just grow our own. Do you think this is kind of a realistic scenario or have I just been watching way too many sci-fi movies? You've
1: definitely been watching way too many (laughs) sci-fi, but regardless, I mean, just one thing on Singapore its interesting. I've got a friend who uh, was at university with me and when she went back to Singapore, she was sent on love cruises to meet uh, suitable young men. And at that point, what was happening in Singapore was what I call the eugenics moment. And it was the same in Britain, in Edwardian England. Yes. Uh, what happens is low fertility starts at the top of society mm. and people then panic, the wrong sort of people are having children, the right sort of people aren't having children and that's where eugenics and, and Lee Kuan Yew was. Just eugenics. a quick, just a quick, yeah. very, very quick interjection as well, yeah. right?
0: it's very interesting about Britain as well, This doesn't quite jail with modern sentiments about politics but the people who were disproportionately in favor of eugenics in that Edwardian area were people of well, like people of the left people oh yes like
1: it was the, it was Beatrice the and bottom, the Fabians yeah, and people Wells. like Keynes and yeah. people
0: like Wells so,
1: <coughs> and Keynes yeah. and actually very interested in yeah. in demography so you have this eugenics moment and then um, be careful what you wish for the mm. the lower orders start having smaller families too mm. and that's what happened so I mean that's an interesting thing other thing about Singapore of course is it is a very small island and both from an ethnic and a general population point of view it can turn on the tap when it likes a lot of Chinese people want to go to Singapore a lot of Chinese people like to get their money out and a lot of people who were who were using Hong Kong for that purpose would rather be down in Singapore and have their money their fortune and their their freedom mm. more not that a super free society but compared to China so um, Singapore's in a very special situation in that respect and it can it can attract many Chinese from Malaysia and so on sure. if it wants to.
2: But again, that's import, that's not profitable. Yeah, title. Yeah, no,
1: no, I appreciate that, but I think that w- where you're so small and you have such a large reservoir of ethnically compliant or conforming uh, potential migrants, you know, that market, does make yeah. a difference. Although, you know, I, from my Singaporean friends, they don't particularly want loads of Chinese immigrants for a whole set of reasons, <laughs> but nevertheless. Um, <coughs> so, the, the 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 technology of the womb and, and and all this i don't really know i can't really answer i haven't been watching enough <laughs> sci-fi films probably but it does make me think when i was preparing to write this this next book i was about to write the chapter on the religious shall the religious inherit the earth mm. to use eric calvin's yeah, great famous book. title and it is a great book um and i received the week before i received an email saying dear paul morland I'm a traditional Catholic. You don't talk enough about traditional Catholics. My brother's got 10, my sister's got 12, blah, blah, blah. Are you the Paul Morland I used to know 30, 40 years ago actually. So it was someone I hadn't seen for 40 years. Just as I'm about to write this chapter, she gets in touch. And so I go to see her and we have a very interesting chat. And I sent her something about the Collinses. Mm. both about their views on the technology of reproduction which they have to use but they've got views about how it will change and also their views about the need to invent a new religion and her response to me was I'm very happy they're pronatalists but they seem to want to reinvent what God has given us Mm. perfectly adequately so I find the idea of 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 uh womb farms rather horrendous, I don't know who's going to bring these children up exactly. and in what ideology. We have the solution and the solution is um, we are, okay, people talk about falling, falling uh, sperm counts and at the moment the evidence suggests that relatively few people at an appropriate age have trouble getting, of course people do, mm-hmm. but with reasonably regular sexual Congress it, at, at an appropriate age most people will get pregnant fairly soon plenty of sympathy for those who Mm. don't, what can we do to help them, all that sympathy. But the demographic issue is not driven by biology at this stage, other than people trying very late. So if we have the, the tools and techniques in our nature, why are we so keen? create these weird sci-fi uh, futures, whether it's about the, the Collins' religion, invention of religion, which I think is very innovative and very interesting, uh, but there seem to be plenty of other religions out there to choose hmm. from already, or whether it's the technology to be fertile, where most of us are perfectly fertile as we are.
0: Let me just ask you a very quick question before we wrap up, it's been very interesting. Uh, the, we, we like to think that we have a fairly young cohort of people in the audience, why should they have children? Why is it a good idea for people, to, for young people, to have children? How would you, how would you tell them to do that?
1: I think there are three reasons to have children. They are the practical, and the ph- philosophical, and the personal. The, the practical is all the stuff we've been talking about, mm-hmm. um, which expresses itself at a social level, labour shortage, and so on. People may not be moved mm-hmm. by that, but exactly the point you were making. Uh, you know, my mother's ninety, and my sister and I take her to doctor's appointment. She's very independent. She's very uh, alert. But having two kids helping out and seven grandchildren visiting, helping out, bringing food, picking this or that up, it makes a big difference. So, okay. what we talked about at the social level is true. But if you've got your own kids, particularly in a world where we're going to have too few people, having your own kids is going to be even yes, more. The, yes. So that's the practical. The personal is that if you You're actually the
0: philosophical. And then okay, the, person, and the, then the, the philosophical
1: person. is the debate about why we should have children, the religious and philosophical debate, the religious traditions, Mm -hmm. the debate with the anti-natalists, uh, this, this South African anti-natalism, David Benatar I think is his oh, name. No, no. There is a whole movement of mm. anti-natalism mm. With, with which I'm very happy to engage. Mm. They have their view, I have mine. Um, ultimately I think, for, from personally from a philosophical re- point of view, Pretty grotesque. I, mm. I, I, I go back to the sort of religious fundamentals of the Judea- Judeo-Christian tradition, be fruitful and multiply, we're told several times in the Bible, so, um, whether that's philosophical or religious, it's I- ideal mm. rather than material. I understand. If you like. yes. um, but I appreciate that on, on that score, as on the first score, there are pros and cons, but I think on balance, um, the, cons, uh, the, the pros win out. The pros win out and then philosophically. Pers- and and, personal. and, and the, the, the personal is that if you actually ask people how many children they want, they want more than they're having so that's an issue for government that's something that Miriam Cates talks about Mm. a lot and I think it's really important and thank goodness for that it would be very worrying if people on average wanted one child Mm. so you know that's something we've got in hand to work with and the other point is if you ask them after the event did you have more would you wish you'd had more children or fewer children far more say they wish they had had more Mm. than say they wish they had had fewer. So the final thing I would say is, and I, I think I made this point on a broadcast I did the other day, for me, just going back to the totally personal, having children was the greatest adventure I ever set out on. It's been the most exciting and fulfilling and wonderful thing. And even more wonderful is you get a sort of second, second dividend when you have grandchildren. I've mm. had two grandchildren this year and I can't tell you how wonderful it is. So be bold, weigh in. Uh, put aside your fears and concerns, uh, just get on with it and then figure it out afterwards. And I think the chance of regretting it is very small. Uh, the wonderful, the, sorry. The, I was going to say, the chance mm. of regretting it if you don't is much greater. Yeah. Wonderful, cl- wonderful
0: clarion call to broodiness and we- wexing and multiplying. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Paul Mullen for coming on to deprogrammed. Thank Evan, you thanks good. Good. as ever. You've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment if you wish and we shall see you on the next
3: one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free, just remember, also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.